Happy to move to our third case of the day, 22-1927, Thane versus Crouch. Council, we're happy to hear from you. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court. My name is Caleb David, and I represent the appellants, defendants below, who are state officials that oversee West Virginia's Medicaid program, as well as the state agency that administers that program. West Virginia Medicaid provides health insurance coverage for individuals in low-income households, as well as for individuals whose medical conditions render them effectively needy. The goal of West Virginia Medicaid, like all health plans, is to provide the most benefit to the largest number of people with their limited resources. And Medicaid provides those services equally to all of its beneficiaries. There is no service that is covered for a cisgender person that is not covered for a transgender person meeting the same criteria. The plaintiffs in this case have not been denied any services on the basis of a transgender identity. Shantae Anderson receives gender-confirming hormones through Medicaid. Medicaid pays for her office visits related to those hormones, and Medicaid pays also for her lab work, her psychological and psychiatric care related to gender dysphoria. Christopher Fain also receives gender-confirming hormones. Medicaid pays for those as well as for his office visits related to receiving those hormones. Both Ms. Anderson and Mr. Fain testified that they have never been denied coverage for any service on the basis of their transgender identities. This case is solely about whether West Virginia Medicaid runs afoul of the Equal Protection Clause the Affordable Care Act, and the Medicaid Act because it does not provide insurance coverage for gender-affirming surgeries. It does not violate any of those constitutional or statutory provisions. The Supreme Court in Alexander v. Choate held that Medicaid programs do not guarantee that each recipient will receive that level of health care precisely tailored to his or her medical needs. Instead, the benefit of Medicaid is the individual services that are provided. And that basket of services that Medicaid provides is provided to every single beneficiary equally. Okay, can I ask you a question that um, is, is the simplest question I can think about, about factually on the ground about this. Uh, so does the Medicaid pay for hysterectomies? Yes, Your Honor. And transgender people wishing to have hysterectomies? Yes, Your Honor. West Virginia Medicaid has provided a hysterectomy, coverage for a hysterectomy, to Christopher Fain. The plaintiff in this case received a hysterectomy for something that was not related to gender dysphoria. And no, no, no. If you have gender dysphoria and you want a hysterectomy for that, it's been diagnosed. For will the, Medicaid pay for a for hysterectomy? The, for the treatment of gender dysphoria Correct. solely? No, Your Honor. That is and, what the case is But that seems to me to be... A procedure that is um, provided to cis people, right? Yes, Your Honor, and it's also. And provided. I thought you told me that all the procedures that were um, approved for one were approved for the other. Yes, Your Honor, and they are. But they're not. You just told me they weren't provided to uh, to transgender people to cure. Trans so you're now looking at the effect, but not the procedure. The procedure is the same. Your Honor, the, the facts of the case are that the procedures are not the same. They're not the same. 
Yes, and, that, and if they are the same, if medical studies said that they were the same, oh well, for a different purpose, uh, you would you would provide it to transgender people. Is that correct? No, Your Honor. The, the, <laughs> then it doesn't make any difference to you whether they're the same or not, right? It, it does under certain circumstances and certain claims that are raised, but not under the equal protection argument. Correct. And, Your Honor, under the equal protection argument, the what we provide and the ruling of Gadaldig is that you have to provide equal services to people similarly situated. And in this instance, Christopher Fain had a hysterectomy for something that's Unrelated to gender that. dysphoria. And we're talking about the transgender person you think is not similarly situated to the cis person. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor, because they have to meet the same medical criteria. So, and this isn't for Mr. Fain and, and for reasons of confidentiality, I am not going to say what the reasons were for that Mr. Fain received a hysterectomy, but for instance, the, the Medicaid plan provides for hysterectomy to treat endometrial cancer. Well, they, they have the same current procedural terminology code. The, the same CPT code? Yes, yeah. in certain circumstances, the, the CPT codes are the same. Yes, Your Honor. To, and to the, the easy example I'm giving you, so that's the, that's the certain circumstance we're talking about. Yes, Your Honor. The, the same CPT code would apply for billing purposes. And they're industry-wide, used by health care providers? Yes, Your Honor. Insurers. And we should ignore that then? No, Your Honor. The, 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 the analysis is whether or not someone who's meeting the same criteria is not going to be provided that on the basis of their transgender identity. No, but doesn't CPT code tell us about whether you meet the same criteria? No, Your Honor. It, no. That's a billing service. There are different guidelines that the that the parties have both put in that are in the joint appendix that we call Interqual guidelines. And Interqual is a nationally recognized company that provides coverage guidelines for certain procedures. And in this instance, they have a separate set of guidelines for gender affirmation surgeries like those that are at issue here than they do for hysterectomy, for instance, for oncological care. Those are separate guidelines, and there are separate criteria that the individuals have to meet to qualify under those guidelines. So I just want to be sure I understand what you're saying. Um, so is there... Um, a policy that I can look to that says that transsexual surgery is excluded? Yes, Your Honor. That's under the, the list of non-covered services so in the Medicaid how can plan. that not be discriminatory um, under this court's precedence about the rights of transsexual folks? Yes, Your Honor. So under Gadaldig, the analysis is looking at whether or not there are bright lines that are saying that, and, and in Gadaldig it was pregnancy. There was a disability insurance program in California that excluded coverage for disabilities related to pregnancy. And of course, that only affects women. And the court said, when you look at it and you actually look at the analysis, on one side you have women who are pregnant. On the other side, you have all other persons. And that includes both women who are not pregnant and men. And because there are members of the class on either side of that line, and because the actuarial benefits 
of the program not covering disability benefits for pregnancy accrue to all of the uh, members of the, of the program equally, then that's not a gender-based or a sex-based classification. And we have the same situation here. And it's important to understand that there is a distinction between someone having a transgender identity and someone having gender dysphoria. And everyone agrees that in the in this case, and it's an undisputed in the record, that being transgender or There's having... another a distinction between someone who has just gender dysphoria and someone who wishes to have what West Virginia terms transsexual surgery. Yes, Your Honor. So they're, they're, uh, the testimony in the record is that one in every 200 individuals has a transgender identity, but one in 1,000 are in clinical care for gender dysphoria. And an even smaller number that's undefined, but a smaller a fraction of those one in 1,000 are seeking gender-affirming surgeries. So the the applying the the holding in Gadalda here you can't you have to look at the class the, the class in this instance is transgender individuals in in so I'm sorry I I guess I'm not following if this person was both a transgender person and had gender dysphoria there would be a different result here no you're not <laughs> I didn't think so there the the only individuals who are seeking these services no, no, no I'm not talking about this case I'm talking about another case. When the person has is both transgender and has gender dysphoria, or wants transgender surgery and has gender dysphoria, that that's, that is not this case, right? That is this case, Your Honor. They, okay. The plaintiffs are both transgender individuals. They have testified, and there's evidence in the record that they have gender dysphoria, and they are seeking surgery to uh, treat their gender dysphoria. So they. So what was your what was what was different in my colleague's uh, hypothetical to you? The, Your Honor, the, the analysis under the Equal Protection Clause, as the court held, as the Supreme Court held in Gadaldig and recently reaffirmed in Dobbs, is that you can't add on to a class. You can't append on to a class. Once you do that, then it's no longer discrimination That's against true. a class. And in Bray versus Alexandria Women's Health Center, the Supreme Court looked at abortion. And they specifically said women who are seeking abortion are not a class. Women are a class, but women who are seeking abortion are not a class. And in this instance, transgender individuals are a class, but transgender individuals who have gender dysphoria and who are seeking gender-affirming surgeries is not a class. That's not a sex-based classification, and so rational basis review applies. And the Supreme Court has held in Gedeldig and in other cases that the actuarial benefits and those cost analyses are sufficient to survive rational basis review when looking at these benefits programs like the disability program in Gedeldig and the Medicaid program here in this case. And, Your Honor, the, the issue on, <coughs> excuse me, on Equal protection grants doesn't simply end at, at that argument. The plaintiffs can also prove that they are, that this is a proxy, that there is invidious discrimination that's occurring here, and that transsexual surgery is simply a proxy for the actual invidious discrimination, the discriminatory motive of the Medicaid program to target transgender individuals. We moved for summary judgment on this issue because there's simply no evidence in the case to suggest that. First, 
as I stated at the beginning, West Virginia Medicaid does provide uh, coverage for gender confirming care up to, but not including, transsexual surgery as it's termed or now it's called gender affirming surgery. And because we provide psychiatric diagnostic evaluation, psychotherapy, psychological evaluation, counseling, office visits, hormones, and lab work, there is no evidence that there's invidious discrimination here. And specifically, the testimony in the record from the Medicaid program's 30B, one of the Medicaid program's 30B7 or 30B6 representatives was that they decided in 2017 to cover hormone therapy and psychological counseling for individuals suffering from gender dysphoria, specifically because they had heard stories about individuals being distraught that they could not receive hormone therapy when they were on, when they were experiencing gender dysphoria. That came from a place of trying to help those individuals. And unfortunately, West Virginia Medicaid cannot provide coverage for everyone tailored to their specific needs as the court found in, in Alexander versus Choate. It doesn't have to be tailored to their specific needs. And unfortunately, the reality of the situation is, is that there are limited resources and someone may have an issue and West Virginia Medicaid cannot provide coverage for everyone to have what the, what the court called adequate health care. The, the actual benefits are the basket of services that are being provided to those individuals. And the Supreme Court held in Dandridge versus Williams and reaffirmed in Gadaldig that the Equal Protection Clause does not require a state to choose between attacking every aspect of a problem or not attacking the problem at all. And the Supreme Court has also held in Williamson versus Lee Optical and in Jefferson versus Hackney that a state may take one step at a time, addressing itself to the phase of the problem which seems most acute to the legislative mind. The legislature may select one phase of one field and apply a remedy there, neglecting the others. That's exactly what West Virginia Medicaid has done in this situation. They have provided care for certain aspects of gender dysphoria. They have not provided care for gender-affirming surgeries, and they are permitted to do that under the Equal Protection Clause. They're also permitted to do that under the Affordable Care Act. The analysis is, is essentially the same under the Affordable Care Act. You cannot discriminate on the basis of sex for the same reasons under Gadaldig that this isn't a sex-based classification for equal protection purposes. It's also not a sex-based classification for purposes of the Affordable Care Act. And lastly, on the Medicaid Act, there's nothing in the Medicaid Act that specifically requires any program to provide these services. And in fact, since 2004, which is the earliest point in time that we can find West Virginia Medicaid policy that specifically lists, uh, among other non-covered services, transsexual services. So for the last 20 years, CMS has annually approved the Medicaid plan that West Virginia has put before it. And for those reasons, it also doesn't discriminate or doesn't violate the Medicaid Act. My time is up. Can I ask just one question Absolutely. before you go? You, you have not argued um, that, that there's no cause of action under the Medicaid Act, have you? We have not taken that position, Your Honor. Thank you. We'll hear from you again in a few minutes. Council, we're happy to hear from you. 
Thank you. May it please the court. Tara Borelli with Lambda Legal on behalf of the plaintiff's appellees. I want to return to something that my colleague said a moment ago, the testimony of a witness in the case who said, we learned that transgender people who were being denied hormones were distraught um, over that denial. And so we decided to provide that care. It's medically necessary, along with all the other care that they provide for transgender people. And so this is a story of kindness and compassion. That was his testimony. And he was asked at deposition, why doesn't that kindness and compassion extend to surgery? And he said, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And that's the story of this exclusion. It's a government classification in search of a justification. They don't know when they adopted this exclusion. They don't know why they adopted this exclusion. They've performed zero research or analysis about it since that time. And they stipulated that nobody who either adopted or who maintained the exclusion has ever conducted any research or revisited it or considered a scrap of paper. I want to turn to a couple of points that my colleague raised. With respect to the fact that Medicaid covers a range of other services, office visits, lab work, hormones, for example, that just points to the arbitrariness of the blanket and categorical ban on surgery. And I want to be very... I want to make sure because there's a little confusion in your briefing as to what you keep referring to the exclusion, but I want to understand what you say it is. So you you describe it on, on page three of your brief as an express exclusion of surgery for transsexual people, and I know transsexuals in quotes, but we're going to use the language that West Virginia has used. I mean no disrespect in using that over transgender, but um, as you do for transgender people facing um, facially discriminates, right? That's that's the argument. And, and what I'm having a little trouble with is here and elsewhere in the brief, you suggest that there's an exclusion of surgery for transsexual people. But when I look at the policy... Um, it doesn't apply to transsexual people, right? Transsexual is an adjective that describes the type of surgery, right? Not the people for whom it applies, right? And so I, I just want to make sure I understand you're not arguing or claiming that this is a ban on all surgery for transsexual people, which is what it says excludes surgery for transsexual people is how you describe it. But that's not accurate, right? So I appreciate the chance to clarify. So the the ban, I think the wording of the ban, the exclusion is very important um, because it doesn't name a single procedure, but it names the group targeted and singled out for discrimination. So but, one piece of why? it. Why? That's what I, I'm having a little hard time understanding that because it's you say it is a exclusion of surgery for transsexual people, but presumably if a transsexual person has a heart problem, they can have open heart surgery, right? Yes. And if a trans person has any other problem that requires surgery, they can have that surgery just like um, Thane did here. Yes. So to be clear, let me talk first about what it says and and then what it means. What the exclusion says is no coverage for, quote, transsexual surgery. That doesn't actually name a single procedure. It It just names the group. Just so I understand, that adjective transsexual is describing surgery, not a group of people. It describes the person. It doesn't need a single surgery. I, wanna, I think your argument turns on this, so I, I want to be sure I understand it, right? Yes. So how, when I read the word transsexual surgery, do I interpret the word transsexual as anything other than an adjective describing the noun that follows it, surgery? Because a few reasons. First of all, the surgery is the same. And so this, when it says... Same as what? 
The same as the, the same care. Same as being transsexual? No, the same as the care provided to cisgender people. So a hysterectomy, an oophorectomy, a vaginoplasty, the unrebutted testimony. the question of why the adjective, I'm literally asking like a linguistic question, right? It, the ban on transsexual service or transsexual surgery. You want to read the word transsexual as an adjective describing person or perhaps to describe it as a noun, right? Um, but the words are transsexual services. So transsexual is an adjective describing the noun surgery. It is a type of surgery. Whatever that type is matters not for this point, right? But do you, do you understand what I'm saying? You keep saying it's about transsexual people, but the ban has not, doesn't say transsexual people. It says transsexual surgery, which is a type of surgery. So let me be clear. The other piece of the ban refers to sex change surgery. That might be another way of understanding what this exclusion does. It doesn't exclude... That is a type of surgery, right? No. The, the testimony in the record by Dr. Schechter, the only surgeon to testify, is that every surgery that a transgender person seeks is the same as the surgery that a cisgender person seeks. The surgeries are the same. Defendants left that testimony completely unrebutted. This is a, an expert surgeon who's performed hundreds of gender-affirming surgeries. The hysterectomy is the same. The vaginoplasty is the same. All the surgeries are the same. What this exclusion does is says this group of people, transsexual people, you are the people who cannot get that surgery if you need it for gender-affirming care. If, if cisgender people require it for other reasons, they can have it. But if you need it for gender-affirming care, you cannot have the surgery. And this court has spoken to that. I ask about that? I don't want to take us too far afield from the linguistic question, but I thought we have to look at the policy as a whole, right? So we have, as you mentioned, we have the um, what they call transsexual surgery. There's sex change, as referred to. Um, West Virginia says we don't, we don't cover any surgery that's the diagnosis is a what they call a psychi psychiatric condition. So they say if it's a DSMV diagnosis, then we don't cover surgery for that. We don't cover physical surgery for diagnosed mental conditions. And I understand you disagree with that categorization. But I had a question about your expert, um, Dr. Olson Kennedy, and Dr. Olson Kennedy testified that cisgender people can also sometimes feel as though their body doesn't conform to their expectations for their gender. And Dr. Olson Kennedy testified that if a cisgender woman had hypomastia, that Dr. Olson Kennedy would refer that person for surgery for breast augmentation if it caused the, the cisgender woman distress significant distress. And West Virginia's answer is, we wouldn't cover that. It's not because she's cisgender. It's not because she's not transgender. We don't cover that surgery for that diagnosis. So how does that evidence support, from your, from your expert, support the conclusion that these are, we're talking about the people rather than the procedure and the diagnosis? So I think I hear at least two questions. Let me take them in turn. Um, the first one is in terms of their argument that they don't cover diagnoses in the DSM, the unrebutted testimony in the, in the record is also that gender dysphoria also consists of a medical condition. 
It is widely. And so that, you know, as I said, I know, I know that you, you categorize it not just as a DSM, but also a medical condition. And that, that might dispute how West Virginia, you might think West Virginia misunderstands, right? They misunderstand the condition, but I'm just trying to understand the classification that they're drawing, right? For equal protection purposes. Correct. And an additional, um, important piece of evidence in the record are the interqual guidelines. So these are the guidelines for medical necessity that the West Virginia Medicaid program uses, their own medical necessity guidelines. And those guidelines recognize that treatment for gender dysphoria, including surgical treatment, is medically necessary. The only thing that bars those guidelines from being used to provide medically necessary Again, care. that goes to whether, you know, whether they have a, a rational basis or whether they satisfy strict scrutiny. But my question is just about the classification. If West Virginia says we don't cover this surgery based on what we consider a psychiatric diagnosis for anyone, how how do I reconcile that evidence with your theory that they are drawing a classification based on a person's transgender identity? Here's a, a next important piece that I want to make sure I've mentioned. On the face of any inter- just a little louder. Yes, Your Honor, I apologize. Oh, I apologize, Your Honor. Thank you. We, we um, all have sometimes trouble hearing. <laughs> understood. <laughs> so in the interqual policy, if you look at the face of every single policy, it contains ICD codes. These are international classification of diseases codes promulgated by the World Health Organization. Again, a classification system for diseases. That's what interqual relies on. Gender dysphoria is in that listing as a disease under the rubric of gender incongruence. By every metric that this program uses to measure what is a medical condition, gender dysphoria satisfies that that rhetoric. So you're just going back again to disputing, you're saying West Virginia misunderstands the diagnosis, right? And if they understood it properly, they would cover this. But that doesn't answer my question about how does this prove they're drawing a classification based on a person's sexual identity rather than based on the surgery and the diagnosis? Because the surgery is the same. So, um, for example, Christopher Fang required a hysterectomy. It was performed to treat a different condition. But if he needed that for treatment for gender dysphoria, it would be absolutely barred. And this court... Well, that's my point. The procedure, it may be the same. Now, they dispute that. But it would be the same for a cisgender woman who has hypomastia, and it causes her severe distress, and she wants surgery. Um, But West Virginia says, we won't cover that. We don't care if you're cisgender. We don't cover that for that diagnosis. Right. So a cisgender woman is never going to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And, and this was not disputed anywhere on the record. Only transgender people have but it gender... it was your doctor, Dr. Olson Kennedy, who, whose testimony I'm talking about here. And I'll let you go and move on to other things. It just, I thought this was a real sticking point for, um, for your argument that re- appears multiple times in your brief that we can equate the surgery with the identity because this only ever comes up for this person, and but your expert said that's not the case, that she would recommend surgery in the other context. So she did not testify, to my recollection at all, that that would be for gender dysphoria. There, there are a range of surgeries that a person might want or might need. Um, though They can be cosmetic. What this case is about 
is only care for gender dysphoria. And this court has already recognized the close relationship that only transgender people are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And the court said in Williams versus Kincaid, as a matter of constitutional avoidance, if a law excluded gender dysphoria from its protection, we would have little trouble concluding that that discriminates against transgender people as a class. And again, one only needs to look at the face of the exclusion itself. What Transsexual. Gender dis- people who suffer from gender dysphoria and want surgery. You agree that's a much smaller percentage of the protected class. So those are all transgender people, and there's no requirement under equal protection that every single member of a class be affected in order for there to be an invidious distinction. That's Rice versus Caetano, Nyquist versus Moclay, and this court's own decision in the Peltier case, where not all parents and not all students objected to the requirement that female students wear skirts, and the court said some parents can't nullify the constitutional rights of others. So there's never been a requirement that every person, every member of a group be affected but here only transgender people are affected. And for those who are Medicaid participants, they face an absolute categorical bar on this care. Um, let's see, I also wanna just uh, jump a little bit to the Geduldig point. This case doesn't resemble Geduldig. This exclusion is completely different from Geduldig. It might be the same if the plan said, no one receives coverage for a hysterectomy. That was what happened to Gedaldic. Nobody received benefits for pregnancy, uh, disability benefits for pregnancy. And that mattered to the court. The court said there's no risk from which men are protected and women are not, or from which women are protected and men are not. There was no differential treatment. Here, there's clear unrebutted differential treatment at JA304. There's a long list of surgical procedures. Those are the very same surgeries that transsexual people require to cover, uh, to treat gender dysphoria. And they're absolutely denied under this exclusion. So there's a clear demarcation and difference from Gedaldic. There was no differential treatment there. Here, the differential treatment is undisputed. Um, additionally, can I, can I ask a, a, a slightly different question? Um, and and that's sort of to go a, a little bit to sort of the Bostock analysis of sort of but for cause. And so, help me understand if if Thane was a biological male or cis, whether we're talking about sex or transgender, but I'll use male. The analysis works, I think, with the same with transgender. But if Thane was a biological male, um, then West Virginia would not provide coverage for a mastectomy, right? Sorry, meaning he's he's a cisgender man? If I only change that fact, right? So he's... They do cover that. They cover it for gynecomastia. So if cisgender... But I want to only change one thing, right? So the point of Bostock, right, is you change one thing. And the only thing I change about Thane is that biological maleness, right? But otherwise, everything else remains the same. No additional diseases or cancers or anything else. But the only thing I change is biological sex from female to male. Um, In that scenario, West Virginia would not give Fane uh, mastectomy. Not true. Um, Why? That's what I, I'm, I'm, and that's I a perfect that's example, Your Honor. It's yeah. a perfect example because if Mr. Fain's sex assigned at birth were male and he had excess chest tissue, um, which generally is diagnosed as gynecomastia, West Virginia would cover that. If, if okay, totally fair. And right? it has to be symptomatic. The key phrase there, though, the key phrase you just added was a different condition, right? So if he had gynecomastia, I don't know what that is, but I'll assume that's a different condition, right? If he had cancer, if he had something else, that's fine. But then you're changing two facts, not one. 
You still understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying. You got, this is the Bostock analysis, right? Bostock tells us you change only one thing, not two things, right? You don't get to change their their sex or gender and their you know sexual preferences, right? You just change one thing, right? Yes. Transgender now cis and yes. doesn't get the mastectomy. He does. If if he has access, there, there would be a diagnosis if, for that. If what? And if he, if has he has a different diagnosis. If he is a male with excess chest tissue, um, and everybody has to have a diagnosis to get treatment, so that's the same. That's the same. If he's a male no, with excess... diagnosis changes, though. In your hypothetical, the diagnosis has changed, right? Right. But if you look at the diagnosis here, so this can be analyzed as a matter of discriminates based on sex assigned at birth, discriminates based on diagnosis, discriminates based on both, or you can look at either in isolation. They all point to sex and transgender status discrimination. Williams versus Kincaid recognizes that gender dysphoria discriminates against transgender people as a class. That's the, the language of that decision. And the exclusion here also is about sex change surgery, and that on its face says, we disapprove of this sex-based purpose. If you're doing something that doesn't align with your, your sex assigned at birth, we disapprove. We will not cover it. That is sex discrimination. Thank you, counsel. I thank believe your colleague has a few minutes. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. May it please the court. Thank you, My name is Anna Prakash, and I represent Christopher Fain, Shante Anderson, and the certified Rule 23 class. The district court did not abuse its discretion in finding numerosity here, and that's because the court recognized that what this case seeks is not a declaration that all transgender folks on Medicaid are automatically entitled to surgery. Rather, the district court recognized that this case is about lifting the bar that prevents transgender Medicaid participants from even being considered for surgery. As the district court explained, and this is, I, I believe, in the summary judgment opinion, talking about standing, the state has constructed a barrier, a discriminatory barrier, between every trans person and health insurance coverage for the surgical care that you all have been talking about this morning. So because of that, the existence of the 686 folks that the parties have gone back and forth in their briefs about, because of that, their existence proves numerosity, because each and every one of those folks is a transgender Medicaid participant, and even just a fraction of those, if even just a fraction of those folks were to seek surgery, we would be at this 40-person numerical threshold that the Fourth Circuit has adopted. Now, the state goes on about ascertainability. Ascertainability in the context of a Rule 23b2 class is not technically required. This circuit has acknowledged in the Thorne case that we're talking about a class that is purely for injunctive relief and that it is different than a Rule 23b3 class where notice is required and the opportunity to opt out is given. That is not this case. This case is about injunctive relief on behalf of every single person. And for those reasons, unless the court has further questions, I will rest on our briefs and, and ask that you affirm. Thank you, counsel. Counsel, we're happy to hear from you. 
Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> and I'd like to, to start back at that linguistic question that you had. Transsexual surgery is simply a, a description of a group of procedures the same way that gender-affirming surgery is a description of a group of procedures. It's not, you, you don't say, I, I need gender-affirming surgery. It's not specific enough. It's, I, I need a mastectomy to treat my gender dysphoria. That is a specific procedure. It's not describing an individual, it's describing a group of procedures. And, and actually, Dr. Schechter, the plaintiff's expert, testified that gender-confirming surgeries are typically a constellation of procedures that include top surgery, genital surgeries, and also potentially hysterectomy, oophorectomy, orchiectomy. And I also want to touch on the, the point that these these are not the same procedures. And again, they are under different criteria, you must meet different medical criteria and different guidelines to qualify for these procedures. But Dr. Schechter described in his deposition what's involved in vaginoplasty for a gender-affirming surgery. And that includes removal of the penis and testicles, followed by use of tissue from the penis to construct a vaginal canal, labia, and clitoris. Those are not the same that's not the same surgery as one that is done for someone who has a congenital absence, absence of a vagina because there's no penis. There are no testicles. That's not something that's being removed and, and healthy tissue being extracted from someone's body and being used for a different purpose. Those are different procedures. Now, I also want to touch on this issue of medical necessity. And there is testimony in the record from our own expert who disputes the medical necessity of these surgeries. However, Medicaid is not required to cover all medically necessary care and doesn't cover all medically necessary care. For instance, tempo, tempo mandibular joint disease, TMJ, issues with the jaw, that's a medically necessary surgery, and that is a surgery that Medicaid does not cover. We specifically have in, among that list of non-covered services that includes transsexual surgery, we also have TMJ. We also do not cover inpatient psychiatric services for individuals between the ages of 22 and 65. There's no question that some people may need inpatient psychiatric services between those ages, but we do not provide those services because of cost. And it's the same issue here. There was a statement that, that the A30B representative was asked about why we determined that we were going to start covering hormone therapy and counseling and that it was done because there were individuals who were distraught and, and it did come from a place of caring and, and trying to help them. That there's a different person who answered the question of why. And that person explained that in 2024, West Virginia Medicaid will have a $128 million deficit. If that is not cured by the legislature, in 2025, they will have a $256 million deficit. And that's going to continue to grow unless the legislature provides funds. We don't know if the legislature will, will provide funds. We have requested funds for other care in the past and been denied. Last legislative session, we were denied twice in asking for modest increases in our, in our appropriations. We can't guarantee that those services will be there. So we would have to make decisions as to what we're going to cut because there are a set of required services that Medicaid has to cover 
and then there are optional services. This would be an optional service, and Medicaid would have to determine what the proper mix of amount, scope, and duration limitations are for other services. So they would have to reduce the benefits, and that is the, the actuarial issue that we're talking about and what Gadaldig makes so important. I, I also want to touch on this issue that there is this invidious discrimination because of the words transsexual appear in there. West Virginia Medicaid does not track gender identity. They, they have no way of knowing whether someone is transgender or not. It's not something that they look at. It's not something that they track. Their system doesn't designate it. So there is nothing that is covered for a cisgender person that's not covered for a transgender person. And case in point is Mr. Fain's uh, hysterectomy that he received. He received that because it wasn't for gender dysphoria. And we can see that if it was for gender dysphoria, he wouldn't have received it. But that is the one thing that actually changes this, is the diagnosis and what the treatment was for. It does not matter that he's transgender, just like it doesn't matter if someone is cisgender, just like it doesn't matter if someone is a man or a woman. For all those reasons, I, I see that I'm out of time, and I, I ask that the court reverse. Thank you, counsel. Uh, as you heard, we get to come down and greet you again, so we'll do just that. <laughs>